Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. So welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss issues in medicine and agriculture with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet. Uh, my name is Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk about two issues in animal husbandry. A lot of the controversy that we see nowadays uh, may be bordering nonsense in what we see in animals in veterinary care. And so we'll spend the first half of the podcast talking about vaccination. And the second part, we'll talk about pet food. And with me tonight are uh, at, at the Fluid Lounge in Newberry, Gainesville, Jones, Jonesville, Jonesville, sure. Jonesville. It's the, uh, <laughs> I always get confused between Jonesville and Jonestown, but this is a place where you, you can drink the Kool-Aid. Right. I always, yeah. Um, <laughs> so with me today, I have Dr. Debbie Cottrell, and Dr. Debbie Cottrell is a, um, a veterinarian here in uh, Newberry, and um, she runs West End Animal Hospital. And um, then along with us is also Dr. Amy Stone, and Dr. Amy Stone is that her PhD is in immunology, but she's specialized in small small animal care. She's at the University of Florida and works in dentistry. Primary care and dentistry. Primary yeah. care and dentistry. Mm-hmm. So you have to do all these. I teach veterinary students how to do general practice. And then I should mention that both uh, Doctors Cottrell and Stone have both been recognized for their excellence in teaching, as well as or well, Doctor Stone for teaching and her um, uh, efforts in the classroom. Uh, Doctor Cottrell for her efforts in um, I guess you would say outreach, but things that you've done. Probably. Um, like, veterinarian of the Year. That was the same. Yeah, veterinarian yeah, of the Year. So t- tell, tell us a little bit about some of the things that your clinic does that are really unique. Like, you know, when you did pit nip or when you went out and looked for animals after Hurricane Katrina, some of those things. Like, just give us a quick. We do focus a lot on trying to help rescue groups. Um, after we, my husband and I went to uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Um, we found so many pit bulls that had been abandoned and left to die. And so we started a free spay neuter program for pit bulls that ran for several years. Um, we, we work with rescue groups a lot. And I have what I hope is a very evidence-based 
practice. Um, I try really hard to do that. Um, I have undergrad degrees in biology and chemistry, and so post-grad work in genetics and DBM. So I hope that uh, everything I do is pretty evidence-based. Well, that's what I adore about you. You're very <laughs> much an evidence-based veterinarian. I should should say she takes care of our dogs, and uh, uh, she's Stinky's primary stinky dog. Pri yep. primary caregiver. I'm the stinky dog. Yeah, so I, I really appreciate that about what your practice does, and it's one of the things that makes it so attractive. Amy, what about you? What do you what do you do day in and day out? Well, day in and day out, I try to teach veterinary students how to be responsible veterinarians and how to practice with evidence-based medicine. Um, veterinary students will definitely keep you honest. They will ask you why every day, just like a two-year-old, and you better have a good answer. You better have an answer that's backed up with something because they'll call you out. Well, one of the neatest things about University of Florida, and then coming from a guy who works there and, and who manages faculty there, um, we, we always get the weird examples, like the strange plant disease or the really bad accident or you know the things that are really on the edge. What's some of the oddest things you've ever seen in the University of Florida Animal Hospital? Oh, wow. <laughs> so our emergency department has seen some very strange things. Um, but we've seen animals that have eaten um, all sorts of things. We had an animal that had a, um, a, it's a picnic spear, like if you put a shish kebab together through its heart. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we, no one knew it was there. Um, that's probably the weirdest one I can think of. We had a snake that ate several golf balls. Um, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. How about, uh, I heard once that you shared an elevator with a tiger. Oh, yes, I did. I did that. That wasn't weird. That was just scary. <laughs> um, we, I was supposed to be doing a root canal on a tiger whose you know, canine is as long as my hand. And um, so they wanted me to start examining him when we were coming down in the elevator while he was under anesthesia and looking at myself and about three other people in the elevator with this tiger. And I'm, if he wakes up, we're dead. We're done. <laughs> well, where, where the elevator stops. and uh, Right, and you're stuck for hours and hours. <laughs> you're stuck for hours and hours while the, while the tiger slowly wakes up. Yeah. The There's a movie there. I think I'd figure out how to get out of that elevator pretty quickly. <laughs> That's like snakes on a plane, only yes. the tiger's on an elevator. Yes. It? So let's let's talk about the science. Now, um, the first thing I really want to focus on today is the idea of vaccines, and mostly about vaccines in our pets. And I think one of the trends that I find really disturbing is that a lot of the uh, Jenny McCarthyism that's happening with children is now being reflected in what we see happening to our pets. And so, first thing maybe we should establish is why are pet vaccines important? Pet vaccines are important because we need to be able to establish immunity within the animals that live with us. We need to have, you know, these animals not getting diseases that potentially are going to kill and hurt them or diseases that are potentially going to be given to us and kill and hurt us. Well, are, are there um, animal diseases that can be transmitted to humans? Absolutely. Let's take rabies, for example. Oh, yeah, that's a good example. <laughs> the rabies vaccine, probably the most important thing that we do. Yeah. So how, how prevalent is rabies now in uh, home animals versus our pets versus people worldwide or well, let's, let's start here I, and then I, go I, worldwide I, I, know the to this one. I was gonna say worldwide um, because I subscribe to and support mission rabies mm -hmm. which is a group out of the UK mm -hmm. that sends vaccination teams all over the world um, especially in India and Asia about a hundred people a day die of rabies. 
the reason that doesn't happen in the U.S. is because we vaccinate. Now, the rabies vaccine is mandatory too, right? Yes. In most states. Most states. And let me guess a state where it might not be. <laughs> Does it end in an A? No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, most states end in an A. No, but this, the one I'm thinking of does not. Um, so if we talk about the um, rabies vaccine and some of the um, uh, some of the good things that it's done, how prevalent is a human case of rabies in the U.S. now? I don't know that we have all that data from the U.S. given that we don't know. I think there's roughly uh, somewhere between 10 and 30 cases a year. Yeah. Except that there are people now that are coming into hospitals that with appearance of rabies that they're being tabulated as having rabies and are getting into statistics that don't actually have it. I was listening oh, to a, yeah, an, yeah. actually an NPR program about that where they were having people that were tabulated with rabies that don't actually have it. So the numbers are a little skewed there. So it's like um, a pseudo-rabies or something kind of, like this? It, well, it's not, not technically pseudo-rabies, but it's it's a, the same symptoms as rabies, and they're not actually sure what it is. Wow, that's... Um, and it's not fatal, whatever the, this is. And I guess the other big question about rabies is that how frequent is transmission from wild animals to our domestic animals? Depends on where, how much interaction they're going to have. Um, but it can be in anything. You know, things can come in the house. It's not just because you have an animal that lives inside does not mean, A, that animal won't get outside, and B, that wild animals won't get into your house. And the proliferation of feral cat colonies oh, yes. is a huge problem. Um, rabies in cats um, is has having big spikes in geographic specific geographic areas because of these feral cat colonies. Well, if um, if old time TV is any guy, like things like Bewitched, and it always is, or Gil always. <laughs> that's, or Gil that's the evidence I, right I, there. That's a Gilligan's Island. There always was a bat in the house, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and now you're the bad expert, Dad. Yeah. Right? That so, doesn't that doesn't always happen. It doesn't always. Yes, happen. it's happened, but, but it always happened on Bewitched. One one of them could turn into a bat. Ninety nine percent of human rabies cases worldwide are from dogs. dogs. Are from dogs. Yeah. Okay, so so in fact, in several countries in in Africa, a kid dies about every minute, bred by dogs. <laughs> And so where, where is it a really a huge problem? Developing countries. Um, in general. In general, yes. And, and when, I, when I was, I do some um, work in Honduras, um, helping with some folks that don't have money to do anything with their animals, but they have a lot of care and a lot of love for their animals. Um, there was an entire town that didn't realize that cats could carry rabies. Oh, wow. Mm. Like an entire island of people that didn't realize that cats could carry rabies, and that wasn't that long ago. And so, what what's happening in the developing world to control rabies and vaccinate pets? Well, there's lots of happening. Um, as you know, being involved with uh, mission stuff, there's a um, several companies that are working on vaccines that can be dropped from airplanes um, that wildlife can then eat. Um, and that way, they're not transmitting it to those um, to the, the pet animals or the animals that frequent around people like dogs. Um, there's also major vaccine groups going out with vaccinations and trying to get both people and animals vaccinated. So that's really cool. So they're actually dropping vaccines from airplanes. Yes. You're doing this over urban yes. centers mm -hmm. to get um, actually not over urban, over over more rural centers that then have the wildlife that interacts with the dogs. And oh, whatnot. I see. So you're actually trying to target like the. Uh, Coyotes, coyotes, raccoons, and raccoons and, yeah, and like that, that kind of thing. Yep. So maybe the other big question is about vaccines and animals. That talks about um, 
like what ra- raccoons come to mind is this idea of leptospirosis. Mm-hmm. And in this particular area, in Florida and across maybe the U.S., how much of a problem is leptospirosis? It's a big problem. I mean, you've got, it's not as big a problem as, say, somewhere like Puerto Rico or an island nation where many of the people have it as well as the animals. But we have quite a bit of it, especially up, Florida has some, but up in the Midwest area, Michigan, I know friends that, that work in the ER up there that see probably 10 cases a weekend. Um, wow. Yeah. Where, where does it come from? What kind of animals? Wildlife. It comes from raccoons. It comes from deer. It comes from bats. It comes from mice. It comes from any of that. And it can live in standing water. Yeah, see, I got really sick once after eating grapes from outside. And I battled the raccoons for my grapes. And I thought I must have got leptospirosis. Not a whole lot of water for anything to stand in. Well, no, no, no. But I was thinking like that because it's transmitted by urine and stuff. So I just pictured a grape, uh, a raccoon eating my grapes and peeing on them, thinking they'll eliminate their competition. But well, they they do like to wash their food in the same place they pee. That's true. Yeah, all right. And I had my last my last patient that had lepto that was for sure lepto that I was allowed to test it and know that it was lepto it was an Italian greyhound. The only time she went outside was when the owner set her down on the back porch. She went to the edge of the back porch urinated and came back in. The wood pile that's right there where rats and mice pee, she also happens to sniff as she came back inside every time. So she was not at great risk. Yeah, but still. We wish she'd been vaccinated, that's for sure. So what what is the deal with the vaccination? And is that one that's recommended or mandatory? It's not mandatory. It's not. We, we have it's concepts called rabies. Rabies is the only one that's rabies mandatory. is mandatory, and we have concepts called core and non-core. Okay. And core basically means that it's something that, as veterinarians, we recommend that all animals get unless there is a major reason not to give it, like a problem with that animal. Um, that we would say we don't want to give that vaccine. Then there are called at-risk vaccinations. And some animals are going to be more at risk than others. And that's a conversation that you have to have with the owner every time. You have to have that with the owner every time you talk to them, every time they come in, about has those have those risks changed? Have, is that animal now exposed to something they weren't last year or last six months or whatever? But I think we're all in agreement that the core vaccines, the ones like that every pet dog needs are the distemper, adenovirus, parvovirus, and rabies. Mm-hmm. There are others that are negotiable and optional depending on situation, um, but those are not. And anyone who has ever seen a dog with parvovirus and doesn't believe in vaccinations should probably spend a week at UF in the it's, parvo. It's over ninety percent fatal in unvaccinated animals. That was the, that was my next question. Was you know, how how fatal are these problems that our pets get if they're unvaccinated? It depends on the disease, but they can be very fatal. And that's one of very my expensive with the whole anti-vax movement is. I guess you could say you could make some sort of an argument in people that well, measles doesn't kill everybody, um, or chickenpox doesn't kill everybody, but with the diseases that we vaccinate against, half of them do kill everybody. And this is important. And the cost of vaccinating an animal is pennies compared to the cost of trying to save that animal's life. And I'm just talking about money. I'm not even talking about the love, the attachment, the life that's there. I'm just talking about if you want to break it down into actual dollars. You're going to save so much 
by vaccinating. That's no, it's a really good point. The thing, the thing that drives me nuts about animal diseases is they always sound like pasta dishes. <laughs> True. Uh, have some parvo, some portatella. Yep. I think they. I think a lot of uh, things like parasites sounds like um, spells. Like what? Like Harry Potter spells. Potter like, spells? Sure. Like Tricurus vulpus. <laughs> <laughs> So when you look at the animals, so the other big trend that I always have been a little bit sensitive to is this idea of half vaccination or half vaccination doses. And so why is this a bad idea or is this a bad idea? The immune system is the same size in a chihuahua as it is in a Great Dane. And the vaccines are designed to be given at that dose. And if you're, if you're worried about a reaction, a drop, if that animal is truly going to have a reaction, a drop is going to cause the reaction. It doesn't matter if you give half the vaccine, but it might not actually immunize the animal. I see. Yes. The, the best um, corollary, I guess, or analog that I read from another veterinarian was if you think of it, think of a vaccine as a light switch. It's not a dimmer. You can't adjust the dose. It's either on or off. And if you don't give enough of the vaccine to trick that immune system into doing what it's supposed to do, it's worthless. Right. There's a threshold. Right. There's a threshold. And by giving yeah. a half, if that animal's going to have a paradoxical reaction to it and have a true anaphylaxis, you're still, still going to cause the anaphylaxis. Right. So there's no upside to it. There's no upside. No. Well, what about the idea of... Um, uh, are, are there actually veterinarians out there that do not vaccinate? There must, must be. be. I mean, I'm sure that there are. I do. I, I they didn't. don't work in my practice. <laughs> I, I think I know one from the internet, you know, and she's probably putting a thousand questions on the thread here today. But you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. But, um, but, but there are, I would assume that there are, is there like a, and this is my, is there like a Jenny McCarthy or an Andrew Wakefield pet vaccination? There's several. There are. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to name them or anything, but but what are their major tenets of this? Like it's, it's just not necessary. Animals don't get sick. What do they say? It's not really one that they come up with as often. It's mostly that you're going to cause some sort of terrible harm to them. It's called vaccinosis. 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 Yeah. The, the, the dogs get. Um, That's not a thing. It is a it's real not. thing. I've never got it's it. It's a thing in their mind. Yeah. What about like a dog autism? How would you know? <laughs> but, but but I guess there were was there maybe a paper that talked about this it, where there may a have been a scientific paper yeah no. well where there was some sort of claims about um, maybe obsessive was, compulsion but I don't think it was published in an actual journal it was never peer reviewed okay no. okay so, so it's not a scientific paper no. the evidence has not been tested period okay. All right. so no no real evidence and this is what I adore about about Amy and Debbie is like in, and I should say Dr. Stone, Dr. Cottrell, I get informed. It's, okay. it's fine. But the idea that you know they, they really are evidence-based experts, that, and that's what I, I, why this is such an important podcast. What about in your clinical setting? Do you have patients who come in who push back and say, I don't want this vaccine or um, I would prefer to do this later? Sure. Sure we do. And sometimes there, there is a reason to maybe do things in a different order or do things at different timing or um, in fact I had a dog just this last um, two months come in he's terrified of being at the veterinarian and he really needed to have his nails trimmed because he was hurting his owner by scratching him when he was just saying hi and so we decided that the nail trimming was more important that day than getting the vaccines into the animal because the immunity doesn't 
while, you know, the laws say that the rabies vaccine runs out, it doesn't just, just, it's not like the immune system says, whoops, I'm going to forget that today because that's what the law says. That's not how that works. And so we told them, we said, we want to vaccinate next time. We're going to trim the nails really well this time, try to give them lots of treats, try not to stress them out, and then we're going to vaccinate them next time. And it worked out really, really well. Um, So we delayed it, but we had had nothing to do with because of the vaccine per se, it just had to do with not causing more things to happen to that dog that day. And so there are lots of reasons why you might. Oh, I've got a good question for you. Okay. Coming in from Wind Chapman. I have concerns about bad vaccines from feed stores online. Are my worries founded in reality? And if I, if I can give you a follow-up on that, there is kind of a trend of this uh, do-it-yourself you know, low-cost uh, vaccine clinics, right. especially in rural areas. Uh, what do you have oh, to sure. think about that? Thank you. I... I think the low-cost vaccine clinics in rural areas are not a terrible idea. These are are pets that wouldn't ordinarily go to a veterinarian anyway, and at least they're getting vaccinated. Right. Um, I think that's really important, especially with rabies. And most of those that are actually a verified clinic through something like Walgreens or a pet store, and if they actually have a veterinarian standing there, they're going to take care of those vaccines. They're going to keep them cold. They're going to do the things that you need to do to make sure that's a good vaccine. Yes. When you buy them yourself at a pet store, you have no idea. That's different. You have no idea if they sat on the loading dock. You have no idea what, where, how they were stored. You have no, no idea. Yeah, because so I, I see this all the time at places like Tractor Supply or in other places where you can go and get your own vaccines. Mm-hmm. And it always seems tempting to me, like, you know, why, why am I at the... Because <laughs> I can do my dog and me, but you know, at the, the same time. The question is, are you going to use a modified live, a kill, right. or a recombinant in your animal? Why? Well, how many, Do you how, understand why? Right. I, I guess and, the other point, too. we know why. So, yeah. and we know what's better and what's going to last you longer. Oh, the other thing about, like, especially rabies vaccine, and I believe in Florida it's still okay. That I think you can still buy rabies vaccine in feed stores. I know so you, you can, can buy rabies vaccine, but you cannot legally, so you cannot legally exactly. administer it. You can, you buy, can it, buy it, and but you, you can cannot, give it, but, but it's if not your dog up. bites somebody, it is not going to be recognized right. as vaccine. And, and we, you can buy The reason feed stores sell it is because forced vaccines are not recognized anyway but I don't know a good horse owner that doesn't vaccinate their horse for rabies and so because I wouldn't I'm not going to pay my veterinarian necessarily if I could vaccinate my horse or the veterinarian can vaccinate my horse and either way it's not going to hold up if the right horse gets rabies but I would still want to vaccinate my horse yeah that's an excellent <laughs> yeah. point protect the horse but right. I guess in terms of as uh, as veterinarians um, you know how off how important is that vaccination that annual vaccination session, just as a touch point to intervene in just observing the, the well-being of the animal in general, where you may be not seeing that if it's a you know, one-stop immunization at a farm store or some other place. Yeah, they, the, those vaccination clinics, they, they make no pretense that they're there to do physical exams and give you opinions on the animal's health. They, that they're all, the only thing they're there for is to vaccinate, and in some cases they heartworm test, and they may dispense heartworm prevention. Um, they may dispense flea prevention. May dispense flea prevention. All of those things help that pet. Absolutely. And I don't think any, any of us have any real objection to that. Um, the problem is that if you take your pet to one of these clinics and you think that if something's wrong with your pet, someone's going to notice it and say something to you, that's probably not going to happen. 
Uh, well, that's, that's kind of the, just kind of the cautious idea of having, and maybe I'm doing, you know, your, um, you know, your idea, your business, uh, an idea here, or a, a solid by saying it's really important to just have those annual checkups or those yeah, frequent right. checkups. And, and honestly, if you start, as I know Deb's clinic does, at the, a very early age, talking with people about the reason they come to the veterinarian, because vaccination is an infectious disease prevention tool. That is what it is. It's a serious medical procedure, but it is not the only reason you bring your animal to the veterinarian. It's not the only reason you go to your doctor. It's not the only reason you take your child to their doctor. And so that's the thing is that, yes, I'm with you on the, those animals that are, are going to a clinic that are, or a clinic are probably not going to see anybody anyway. And I would rather have them protected for that animal's sake as for my animal's sake as well. Because if they're going to a dog park, I would like them to not interact. Herd immunity. Exactly. <laughs> But the truth of it is, is that the vaccine is not the be-all, end-all. And we as veterinarians historically have made a mistake in saying that the vaccine, you saw a lot of the time in the 80s, free, free exam with, with the vaccines. vaccines. Yeah. And, that's and it not, should, be should have the been the other way around. Yes. Because we went to vet school, and some of us went to a lot more school, as Deb and I did, than that. So we know what we're talking about. And it's not okay to then charge people for, not charge people for what you did. That that education right. was worth something. Right. That knowledge is worth something. Anybody that's can what you're give paying. the vaccine. Exactly. Well, another question came in from online about, are there vaccines on the market to help with the spread of avian or swine influenza? And, and um, I would imagine it would be highly important to distribute such vaccines in the developing world where... Uh, where human-animal transmission is likely higher than in the states in Europe. And thank you, Adam. That was a great question. Yes, thank you, Adam. There, there are. Um, not all of them work. <clears throat> so while the influenzas can cross species very nicely into other species, um, the, while, while the, the disease can cross very nicely, the vaccines don't always cross very nicely. And we're not always able to make super effective vaccines because, at least in this country, the government gets a little bent when we make modified live influenza anything, because that's now a weapon. And so they don't really want you doing that. And so most of the vaccines we have for influenza are killed. In other countries, it's the same way. And so from you just now, I did not So it's going to be very difficult to give a vaccine that's going to cross-protect from anything when it's so narrowly focused that it's only going to hit one part of the immune system. That's right. Well, but in animal vaccines, is there um, is there a lot of this cross-protection? Yeah. Like, no, not really. There were some vaccines early on that maybe it was cross-protection between like measles vaccine and so, diphtheria or something. Or, or, no, it's measles know, and distemper. Yeah. December, um, December. Yeah, that's so, right. We don't, we don't get the stuff. There are, there are types of, of modified live vaccines that you can give so you can you can give a measles vaccine to a dog and get some cross protection from distemper you cannot give a modified live distemper vaccine to a human and get cross protection from measles okay okay but there is some cross protection in in rabies vaccinations with lysavirus yes. which is a big problem in australia mm -hmm. it's a problem it's down under and down under, <laughs> and the common rabies vaccine does protect against lysavirus as well. The only thing we didn't cover was another trend I saw online, which was this idea of um, antibody pretesting, or titer pretesting, where you actually analyze how much of the antibody is present in the animal before you 
vaccine. Mm -hmm. and, and you can do that. And so what are the pros and cons? There's a, there seems to be almost a kind of a sub-movement again uh, for this. Yes. And, and I'm not opposed to testing for certain diseases because there are certain diseases for which an antibody titer means some protection. But there are other diseases that an antibody titer is meaningless. So it doesn't mean they're protected, but it also doesn't mean they're not protected. And so the information you're getting from that is limited. So there are about three diseases I can think of where the information is actually very valid, and rabies isn't one of them. And so it's hard to tell in, in our patients what is protected and not, because you can also have an animal that's completely got a no titer to one of those diseases, but you can't measure the other side of the immune system. So they may be protected and you don't know. And so these people that think they're, they're not vaccinating their animal at a time when their animal is crucially protected and they're only vaccinated when those titers drop, well, you don't know that your animal's not protected. That's right. We don't know the thresholds. Right. Because you're looking at a threshold of the presence of the antibody, but also the threshold for what's needed for an immunological response. Right. And you don't know, so you can't measure cell-mediated immunity. Right. So, so well, that, that, that's... And having been somebody who has been exposed to a lot of rabbit animals, um, I might hold the U.S. record for the number of rabies <laughs> exposures. I believe sure. that. Um, the health departments now don't even recognize human titers. They don't care what your titer is. You're getting boosted. Right? They don't care. And, and that's a really good, maybe a good point to close out the vaccination side of this on, is as animal health care experts, are you really the most vulnerable people to acquire rabies? I mean, are you the ones who really are the most subject out of everybody? Are you the ones who are most at risk? So I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. Because, yes, we are vaccinated. Most of us are vaccinated. We have to be in veterinary school, first of all. And second of all, we actually, for most of us, and I teach veterinary students, so I can say for most of us, we know what we're doing when we're trying to handle an animal. And we can look at the signs of rabies and go, I'm not going to walk up to that animal. We're going to do something different when we need to get our hands on that animal because it might have rabies. And we actually have that knowledge. And so, yes, we're exposed potentially we put ourselves in harm's way more often, but we also know how to be protected better. And there are a lot of people, there's a meme going around that says, I'm probably going to die because I pet something that <laughs> it's going to kill me. <laughs> and veterinarians are a little bit guilty of that, but we also know when something is not right with that animal and are able to say, you know, I don't think I'm going to put my hands on my animal right this second. I think I'm going to figure out a way to make that animal not able to hurt me before I put my hands on that animal. And not the general public doesn't always know that. Yeah, I kind of can. I can kind of understand that sentiment because I, I think about like a CPR situation. You know, like sure. like I know what to do to fix this, and I would probably be more likely than most people to dive in. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, someone with a piece of rebar through them or whatever. I mean, I would probably be more likely to try to do something. Mm -hmm. But you guys have the training to do that, and with animals, it, it just always seemed to be me to be this something that would be potentially really a, a, a danger, especially when you work with exotics. Yeah, yep. You know, and well, as much as you travel in as many places as you go, you should consider getting rabies you vaccinated. You should. You should. Well, maybe I will. Can you do it for me? I can't, unfortunately. <laughs> costs a lot more for people. Okay. So if I go to if I go down to the tractor supply and do it myself, can I do it? You could, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't I, and I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> well, this is a good place to stop the rabies, or the rabies, the vaccination side of the equation. You're listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. We're here at the Fluid Round and the Fluid The Fluid <laughs> The Fluid Lounge.
in Jonestown, Florida. Jonesville. Jonesville. <laughs> I always get those two reversed. I never will get it right. In Jones, the town of Tioga, Gainesville, Newberry, Florida. And um, I'm here with Drs. Debbie Cottrell and Dr. Amy Stone. And uh, we'll, we'll come back. If you have questions, send them forward. We're going to talk about pet food on the other side. And then we'll be happy to take any questions. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Hi, Talking Biotechers. This is Vern Blazer from the Vern Blazer Science Power Hour. While on hiatus from my podcast, I'm busy as a bee promoting the Talking Biotech Podcast. What can you do to help us spread the message? Well, this mothership isn't monetized. It's paid 100% by Fulta out of its grocery budget. So what can you do to help spread the word? Well... Tell a friend. Tell, tell somebody you don't like. Scratch Talking Biotech Podcast into the bathroom stall at Chipotle. Or maybe tack a note on the Whole Foods Shamans for Hire bulletin board. Most of all, please write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Spread the word on Twitter. Or use social media to tell others that you found something interesting on the podcast. The bottom line is... It's about how science has helped people through improved plants, medicine, and animals, and stands to further improve varieties with the precise tools of biotechnology. So we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today we're talking about pet vaccination and pet food uh, with two experts. I'm here with Drs. Debbie Cottrell and Dr. Amy Stone. And we're discussing the some of the major contemporary topics that we see inside um, on the internet and generally in society with questions about some of the almost the um, things we worry about as people these days now translating to animals. Yes. And we discussed the idea of vaccination in the first part. But I'd like to transition over to pet foods, which have been <laughs> which have become a really uh, uh, kind of a freaky area of, of uh, discussion and, and controversy. But when we started talking about pet foods and specialized pet foods, you know, we've seen all the commercials, we've seen all this stuff, but where did the idea of specialized pet diets really start? And I'm thinking mostly with Dr. Morris. Yes. Uh, what, 1945, 48? Um, Mark Morris was trying to help a guide dog that belonged to a friend of his and this guide dog was having kidney problems, and this veterinarian developed a special kidney diet called Hills KD, um, which was a reduced protein and had some other features that helps dogs with failing kidneys. And that became the first therapeutic diet, and it is still in existence today. And from that came all of the therapeutic diets that are available today. And so as we go forward in the podcast, I really want to differentiate between the legitimate therapeutic diets and what have become kind of an emerging trend yes. in uh, kind of, you know, uh, uh, boutique diets. Fear-based marketing. Fear-based marketing. <laughs> yes. So are there dogs that have gluten problems? I've never, I've never seen, seen one. one. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, and this is kind of the, the, the question or the problem is I think we see a lot of the same trends that we see in human marketing now appealing to the human pet owner and saying, well, if you don't want gluten, 
and you don't know really know what that is. Right. But your dog, obviously, you know, must not yeah, want gluten. You know, they've got water in stores now that says it's gluten free. Oh, I know. Oh, I've yeah. had it. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and when I got it, I didn't. It's very wet. It, it is. It, it's it's wet, and I, and I didn't get celiac disease after I did. Right. Yeah. Um, but, one of the questions here is about um, that is a really important one. Uh, it comes from uh, Kim or from Griffiths, Kim. Um, what's your opinion on feeding dogs a vegan diet only? Um, you know, and, and, and this is a really important point because a lot of people are vegans or vegetarians and, and they have a problem with, uh, you know, hurting animals or, well, harming uh, livestock. What about how that applies it's to dogs? actually even bigger than you think because oh, yeah. I recently discovered and Amy discovered a movement by vegan celebrities probably in Los Angeles um, then it's actually going to be up for a vote in the county in Los Angeles <laughs> and next week whether to feed shelter dogs a vegan diet oh no um, the controversy around this is huge I mean I, I have great sympathy for vegetarianism I, I haven't eaten red meat in 35 years but the idea that dogs should be vegan I, I don't think I can They're embrace not designed that. that way. I don't think I can embrace that. On the one extreme, you have vegan dog food. On the other extreme, you have the grain-free. They're trying to do all meat. I'm in the middle. I think most reasonable people are. And God help you if you try to feed a cat a vegan diet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of vegan birds or vegan moths out in the no, yeah. and, cat, and cats will die. They will get dilated cardiomyopathy and die. Yeah. Dogs can do it. They can. It's not good for them. They were not going to have the health that they would if they got what they needed in terms of calcium and nutrients and that kind of thing. No, I understand that. I mean, I, I was a, a non-meat eater for 16 years, but I had a hard time just sustaining daily activity with the, at the level I did. With the athletic activity I was pursuing, I just couldn't... And, and I can imagine that just it was so much work. It's very difficult, and I can't even imagine someone trying to do that for their dog. And the problem with commercial diets of any kind, vegan included, is that the regulations, there are some basic regulations from the FDA. There are some basic regulations at the state level. There are recommendations and controls by AFCO, the feeding uh, organizations, but they're strictly voluntary. There is nothing preventing someone from creating whatever diet they want and selling it locally. As long as they don't have the AFCO label on it, they can probably get away with it. And there is no, you have no knowledge of what the nutritional components of that feed are so it's 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 the wild wild west and anybody can claim to be gluten-free or organic or natural is the big one. Oh yeah natural which is, is huge which means absolutely nothing yeah a natural dog diet would be like turds yeah yeah, kind of. yeah. i mean it well, means nothing as far as language and enforcement well, let me ask you this one from sarah she says uh, this would be anecdotal, of course, but are you seeing more dogs and cats having urinary issues on grain-free pet foods? This is something I encountered with my own cats and one dog 
And one of my dogs went previously, Seymour, on grain-free foods. So thank you, Sarah. I do know that we have had several animals, and I can't say whether they were on grain-free, but several animals that were supposed to be on diets that were regulating their minerals in their diet so that they weren't getting stones because they had a tendency to do that. And then their owner changed them to a natural diet that didn't have those same, you know, restrictions on it for them, and they all got stones. We had an entire household get stones. Um, but I don't know that it's specifically grain-free. So I don't, and I don't know that there are studies that say that. I don't know that there are either. I do know that I've seen several cases of bladder stones, um, things like that, with what what are loosely labeled as natural, mm -hmm. organic, or non-GMO, whatever you want to call it, anything that's sort of marketing label, they tend to be more um, alkaline, yep. and they create a more alkaline urine, which in turn is a perfect milieu for bladder stones to develop. Perfect environment. Perfect, perfect yeah. environment for bladder stones. So the, uh, in, in, in the headphones, I'm hearing the dishwasher going, kicking in the high gear. You can hear this thing really going back there. So allergies for that. Um, yeah, there's a motorcycle. Oh, it's a motorcycle. Too, yeah. Oh, okay. That must be what it is. Okay. That'll be the dishwasher. Tell the guy's motorcycle sounds like a dishwasher. Harley. move his Harley mag tag out of here. Um, I guess the other, you know, when you touch on this idea of grain free, is this? I see this all the time on commercials. Is this really a big deal? I mean, you know, you see it everywhere. And is no. and is the idea grain free something that there he goes is something that animals should worry about, or something that pet owners should worry about? I'm going to say, from my own opinion, no, because most of the time that if an animal is sensitive to something immunologically, so if they were allergic to something, it is likely a protein. Because the grains don't have the same immunologic makeup, they don't get recognized by the immune system the same way that proteins do. And so if an animal is likely to really have a food allergy, and food allergy very much exists in dogs and cats, but it's, it's likely gonna be to, to be meat. meat. But it's going to be a type of meat. It's not going to be every meat. It's going to be one specific kind of meat that they've previously been exposed to. According to the big uh, allergy lab that we use for testing, um, the top five allergens for food in dogs are beef, dairy, chicken, lamb, and fish. So grain-free is not going to solve your allergy problems. Yeah, but the vegan dog is just fine. The vegan dog will be fine on that. Yes. Well, the vegan dog will not have allergies on it. The that's vegan right. dog will have bone issues right. yeah, that's or right. you know, kidney issues. But. I, I, I guess the other question then is, what about these ideas of these homespun diets? Like, you know, I want to make my dog's yeah. own food. And my, my parents did this. And it and can be it done. It can be done. Absolutely. Uh, it didn't work out so hot for my parents' dog. It, it had a rather unusual problem early in life, maybe five, four or five years old. And, you know, they fed it a chicken breast every night. Oh, wow. That's not about... So if you're going to feed your own diet, it needs to be balanced. You need to get recommendations by a veterinarian. In fact, it would be best if you got a veterinarian to make a recipe for you that is a balanced diet. 
and there are books and on there are recipes. But you want to check them out with a veterinarian. I guess this is the sad part is that, you know, they did it because they love their dog so much, right? That they thought it should have a chicken breast every night. And that was all it ate. And and it it died of an unusual kind of disease. Um, Another question from online from Ad Gronveld. Uh, do you feel glucosamine and chondroitin are useless added to feeds with arthritic pits, pets? Um, or is it completely useless, or is there a big enough possible benefit to justify the costs and possible side effects? Glucosamine and chondroitin, there is limited evidence that it is fairly helpful. I think if you're going to use an additive or a supplement, it has to be omega-3 sufficient. Um, and that's one of the that's one of the benefits of uh, we're talking about therapeutic diets. The Hills JD, um, the average serving for a 50 pound dog contains 4,000 milligrams of fish oil, and so you either need to supplement that as a, a supplement or just feed the JD, whichever you want to do. And there is a ton of evidence, yeah. like you just said, about. Fatty acids, yeah. omega threes yeah, helping, sure. but glucosamine with, and chondroitin, not mm. so much. Yeah, that's always been kind of flimsy. Even in uh, human literature, yeah. has been pretty thin. Mm-hmm. But, if you have money to spare and you want to sure. do it, it's not going to hurt anything. Yeah, but even, but if you have money to spare, go spend it on something else. <laughs> you know, that's my my two cents. <laughs> I, I I love the idea of you know the fish oils and the, the fatty acids and the complex fatty acids. Yes, um, and you know heart healthy diets that are high in those. And for our pets, it does great for joints. It does great yes. for Skin, it is great for gingiva. And, and so gingivitis and, de- and oral health, super important. And, and for humans, we get a beautiful coat. Right. We, <laughs> nice and shiny. And yes. uh, another shiny question hair. from online uh, is, um, uh, which one do I, oh yeah, uh, what is your view on raw meat diets, which maybe ties in with this idea of the ancestral wolf diet. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the fact that wolves and dogs diverged 27,000 years ago. <laughs> and dogs develop genes to digest carbohydrates. Dogs have amylase in their saliva, which is designed for digestion of carbohydrates. Wolves have very little of it. Cats have none. Really? None. So You never see a cat eating crackers. Nope, and that's okay. why. They know. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, there's absolutely nothing there. No, and, and to be honest, raw diets, and you know the whole um, ancestral diets and that kind of thing. The problems I see with that are many, and the benefits are few because you can your animal can very easily become ill. Now I can say that if if you have to feed, if you are just a firm believer that you have to do that, for the love of God, please get one that is packaged appropriately and stored appropriately and use it appropriately because chicken that's been left on the counter is not good for you and if you're not going to eat it your dog should not eat it like i was treated several with salmonella to the point that they well one did die because they were eating a raw diet there's a reason that we cook our food animals in the wild would kill something and immediately eat it they're not going to put it on a shelf or in a fridge or in a freezer for i don't know how long like that's not it's not appropriate. And dogs, their paws don't open and close the freezer very easily. Right. right. The other side. 
Well, there are a couple of, of fallacies there. One is the appeal to nature, which is the assumption that because something is natural, it's better, which we know is totally false. Nature's been trying to kill us ever for a long since, time. Every day. Ever since the world existed, and it's only in the last 150 years when science has intervened that our lifespan and quality of life have actually improved. So the appeal to nature is total BS. In, in, in my book. And the raw diets, they're so complex and trying to keep them balanced. Right. And right now, I don't know that there are any I don't know that there are any available ones that are, that are super trustworthy. No. But there, at least I know that some of them are not going to kill your dog with salmonella. Yeah. And that's kind of, the, I guess, the silver lining on, on the cloud of appeal to nature. You know, you have, um, the thing that drives me nuts is when I start seeing um, foods on TV advertised um, when dogs are colorblind yet they've got these nuggets that look like a little orange dog bone. Those are not for the dog. Right, they're for you, for the pet owner, right? Sure. sure. And and, um, and and when you see things like GMO or non-GMO or organic in dog foods, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you think about 90% of the people, the dogs in some scenarios are eating better than 90% of people on the planet. <laughs> and, you know, some people, the problems they have with the pet food industry are that, it, you know, we had that whole toxin from China in the pet food yeah, and all melamine. that kind of stuff. And the, yes, the melamine. And the, the, the thing is, is that when you look back at that whole history of that whole thing, the pet food companies had it figured out and solved in about and six weeks. Nothing flat. Nothing yes. flat. How long have we been in some of the things that a human... Food, food industry in general. I mean, how long did it take to figure out some of the cases of listeriosis? Sure. How long did it take to figure salmonella. out cases of salmonella? Mm-hmm. Years sometimes. Yes. And you know, they were on top of it. And that, the reason they're on top of it is because they are being regulated by veterinarians. They're being regulated by people that are looking at them, not by any big body, but by by competition. You know, if you've got a pet food company that's one of the big pet food companies that screws up. Veterinarians are going to not trust you, and they're not going to—they're not going to have their clients coming to you, and that's a big deal for them. And, and it does. Trust is a huge thing in the in, in all of our industries, mm-hmm. but in the pet food industry is especially big. Mm-hmm. And I see so much of the appeal for that. Um, you know, and, and we've moved along quite a bit. And maybe I should just make one last res- one last response or one last question. If anybody has any questions for Dr. Cottrell or Dr. Stone, uh, now's a good time to do that. We're going to kind of wrap things up here in the next few minutes. So if you have any other further questions, it's a good time to throw those in. I guess the other big question is, is that when you look at people who are um, looking at specialized diets, where do we really have to draw the line between a legitimate therapeutic diet administered by a, a, a veterinarian versus something that you would buy off the shelf, which is a little more boutique? Where should the average consumer really draw the line? Wow, that's, yeah. that's a little tough um, because it's very difficult for the average consumer to read a label and understand what they're reading. Because it's difficult reading, for a veterinarian too. Yes, <laughs> reading the label ingredients tells you nothing about the quality. Um, as as I was as I learned in vet school, you can have the amount of protein. It can be thirty eight percent protein on the label. That protein can be provided in the form of shoe leather, which is not digestible. Right. 
So reading I've, I've the tried label that. doesn't actually tell you that much. But there so are times when what the label has on it, it sounds weird to you and sounds like something you wouldn't want to put your dog, but if it's designed because your dog has a weird allergy and we're trying to target that making your animal get protein from a source they're not allergic to, and that's a good thing. Well, maybe it's the difference between vitamins and prescriptions. That's true, and it's also the difference between asking your veterinarian for help with it and trying to make it on your own, trying to make the decision all on your own. That's really We're good. We're here to help you. When it's, it's difficult enough for people with degrees in biology and right. chemistry and DVMs right. to figure out what's going on, unless you have those, you're probably not going to figure it right. out for yourself no. with 10 hours of research right. on Google. And we need to be a team. But, you know, if we yes. can do it together, we can get your animal the best thing possible. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, the person who had the question about the um, glucosamine chondroitin yeah. uh, really, really says thank you. And, and I guess the question is, thought it was said um, that maybe, this is thanks, I thought the evidence was nowhere near good enough and um, maybe being promoted too much, but something that was maybe 1% or 2% may have some benefit. But I thought the same was true about fish oil that shamefacedly switched back from my raw feed to old dog, to an old dog who's, you know, 15 years old, um, and uh, the kibble trying to, you know, boost things like fish oils. And um, and I guess it wasn't so much a question as a comment to kind of thank you for your analysis on that particular question. So we, I think we're both on board with oh, fish yeah. oil for sure. Yeah. yeah, not too bad. So, you know, we're, we've, we've covered a lot of territory. And is there anything else that you think that we really need to talk about in the area of either uh, pet vaccinations and pet food or in modern trends around uh, pet biology? For me, the only thing that I want to bring out is the fact that most of the words that you read on a, a label of a, on a pet food bag are marketing. They are not based in science. Gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, all of those things, natural, they don't mean anything legally. They Pet food companies can put damn near anything they want on a bag and not have to answer for it. So just because it says that on the bag and you're paying twice as much for it does not make it better. Right. And it, it doesn't cost a lot of money to do a good job with your pet. That's right. It doesn't have to be an exorbitant cost. I raised plenty of dogs on Karina Dog Track, and they did great. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's a really good point. And I think that if, if, we were to, if we were to devise with experts a skeletal regimen, is it really just buy a dog food that is, is it AMFCO or what was the one? AFCO. AFCO. That's AFCO certified or what, what, what's the... You want, to, you want to buy something that's AFCO certified and that you've discussed with your veterinarian. That you've discussed. Because they can help you what life stage you need to buy, how much calories you need to give your dog, because don't get me started on pet obesity. Um, but those are the kinds of things that, that you, can, you can get some help with so that you're actually getting the most bang for the buck when you're spending money buying the food for your pet. So a, lot, so a lot of the advice is really the same advice you would give to a person. Absolutely. Is that right now, you know, we're subject to all this messaging. And as pet owners who care about our pets, who worry about our pets, we're subject to this messaging that says we need to, uh, you know, if we really love our animal, we should be yes. buying X, Y, and Z. And they can put that, you know, beautiful dog up there with those really pretty eyes and sing 
Sarah McLaughlin songs and all kinds of stuff <laughs> to yank at your heartstrings, which they can't even do with us. Oh, yeah. 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 No, I mean, if, if you showed me in like a chain collar out in the backyard in the cold, no one would give any money. Right. Me either. But, you know, you put my dog that way and they're going to give all sorts of money. Actually, they would give money to keep the chain on. Well, <laughs> but When you figure that the average... The local, the average dog food, eighty-seven cents a pound. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you move up to the natural and the non-GMO and the gluten-free, and you get to organic, and it's like three fifty a pound. Right. And then you take an even bigger jump to raw, which is twelve dollars a pound on average. Neither of those is worth it. No. Stop it. And so, how, how many people do you have coming into the clinic saying? My dog has this problem. I've been feeding him all this raw diet. And then you say, well, he's got this unusual genetic problem, and we have to treat it with this specialized food. And they say, well, I can't afford that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds really good. But, you know, but, but overall, I guess the basic idea is take your dog to the vet, feed them the appropriate food, and lots of TLC. Yes. Amen. And... So thank you very much, Dr. Amy Stone, Dr. Debbie Cottrell. Um, if if um, either of you are either of you on either um, Twitter or a place where they can find you, I'm on Facebook. I'm on University. So Facebook and University. So yeah, West End you know, Animal Hospital on Facebook. Very good, West End Animal Hospital, which is where my dog goes, or my dogs <laughs> both stinky like dogs. Stinky yes. dog goes. Yeah. And uh, we're the place when we landed here in Gainesville 15 years ago where they said, we said, where do we take our dog? And he said, oh, you got to go to West End. <laughs> but thank you very much, everybody, for your questions and your comments, and thank you for watching. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.